Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. This is the Daily Blast from the New Republic, produced and presented by the DSR Network. I'm your host, Greg Sargent. This week, Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio offered one of the strangest defenses of Donald Trump's insurrection we've heard yet. Vance declared that if he had been Trump's vice president in the run-up to January 6, 2021, he would have told states to send multiple slates of electors to Congress so lawmakers could have a political debate over the election's supposed improprieties. As many noted, this was a remarkably depraved and disgusting way to audition to be Trump's Veep candidate. But we're going to look at another angle on this story. What Vance did has serious ramifications for the next election. Vance essentially confirmed that many Republicans think trying to overturn the election as Trump did was not just defensible, In some ways, at least, it was good. So what might such Republicans attempt next fall with Trump as their nominee? Today, we're discussing this with election law expert Matthew Seligman, co-author of a new book called, quote, How to Steal a Presidential Election, which goes through all the sordid possibilities. Welcome, Matthew. Thanks for having me. First, let's listen to what Vance said. Do I think there were problems in 2020? Yes, I do. Do I think it was a problem that big technology companies working with the intelligence services censored the presidential campaign of Donald Trump? Yes. Do I think it's a problem that Pennsylvania changed its balloting rules in the middle of the election season in a way that even some courts in Pennsylvania have said was illegal? Yes, I think these were problems, George, and I think there is a political solution to those problems. So 
litigating which slate of electors was legitimate, I think is fundamentally the political solution to the problems that existed in 2020. It's a reasonable debate to have. And I find it weird, George, that people like you obsessed with what I call what happened in 2020. You're so incurious about what actually happened in 2020, which is why so many people mistrust our elections in this country. We've got to I'm do not better, the least, George. I'm not the least bit incurious. In fact, you laid out a litany there, but you didn't answer the question I asked. Would you have certified the election results had you been vice president? If I had been vice president, I would have told the states like Pennsylvania, Georgia, and so many others that we needed to have multiple slates of electors, and I think the U.S. Congress should have fought over it from there. That is the legitimate way to deal with an election that a lot of folks, including me, think had a lot of problems in 2020. I think that's what we should have done. Matt, it's interesting that Vance simply erases the fact that Trump's objections were extensively litigated by Trump for months in court, and he lost on them all. That's right. And that key point, that critical point, betrays the entire strategy behind the MAGA movement's rejection of legitimate election results. What they're trying to do is take the decision out of objective decision makers like courts and into the hands of biased politicians like J.D. Vance. Yeah, I mean, everything Vance says about the legitimacy of Trump's objections is just bullshit. But that aside, Vance clearly believes that if the courts make determinations on such disputes that MAGA Republicans don't like, then it's perfectly acceptable to do something like send alternate electors, seemingly in defiance of a state's popular vote, to force a political debate on them in Congress. Am I misreading that? No, I think you have that exactly right. And at this point, it shouldn't be a surprise. We saw this in 2020. We saw this in multiple ways. There was the pressure campaign on Vice President Pence uh, to exercise some uh, fictional constitutional power to reject electoral votes or send it back to the states. We saw pressure and actual success in getting uh, hundreds of Republican members of Congress to object to Arizona and Pennsylvania's electoral votes even though those claims, as you say, had been extensively litigated and rejected by the courts. There was pressure campaigns on Republican state office holders like Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find over 11,000 votes to hand the election to Donald Trump. There was pressure on state legislators uh, to to send alternative slates of electors. And so the common theme in every single one of these legal strategies was to go outside the courts to try to use pseudo-legal or extra-legal strategies to reverse the legal and lawful and legitimate results of the election. And what J.D. Vance is doing here is he's saying that, yes, that was the right way to do things. The only problem is that we didn't go far enough and it didn't work. Yes, absolutely. Let's talk about the Electoral Count Act, which governs how presidential electors are counted by Congress, the law Trump tried to exploit. That act was recently revised by a broad bipartisan majority in Congress to Trump-proof it, as it were. That revision does preclude a scheme where multiple slates of electors are sent to muddy the waters in Congress around who really won, as Trump tried. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. The Electoral Count Reform Act, which was passed by, as you say, a broad bipartisan group of uh, members of Congress in, in the Senate had had well over 60 votes, uh, does steal the process, the legal framework for counting electoral votes to a much greater degree than the Electoral Count Act um, was. And so the Electoral Count Act was catastrophically vulnerable uh, to political manipulation. We were extremely lucky in 2020 that that 
exploitation didn't actually happen and didn't actually succeed. It was a combination of circumstance and, you know, Trump's lawyers at the time were a bunch of Keystone cops. But now they've had a couple of years to prepare. And so we're very fortunate that Congress passed the Electoral Count Reform Act. Now, it does preclude the possibility of what we call multiple slate scenarios, where Vance is saying here, well, who can say the courts don't really know whether the Trump electors or the Biden electors are the real ones. So let's have a debate about it in Congress, as if Congress is the right sort of deliberative body to make an objective, objective nonpartisan decision about who won an election. Right. And what is it about the Electoral Count Revision, the, the Electoral Count Act revision that precludes the scheme? So the critical innovation of the Electoral Count Reform Act is it says that one and only one piece of paper coming from a state can be counted. And it has to be certified by, by the it, that's right, can be counted by Congress. And so it only the governor's certified slate can be counted by Congress. You know, it still retains the authority for Congress to debate about whether to reject it. Uh, but it's much harder for Congress to reject that slate. And importantly, the governor's certification is subject to court review. And so a court can order the governor to issue the right one in case there was a, a, what I've called a rogue governor who sends in, let's say, a bogus Trump slate of electors rather than the lawful Biden slate of electors. And so what this does is it creates like an iron chain of custody from the courts to the governor to Congress. And that's the only slate that can be counted by Congress. And so no matter what Vice President Vance wants, Congress won't be able to count the alternate slate that's sent in. Um, but there are still ways to pull off a steal next time. The one scenario that most alarms you is a state legislature passing a law giving itself the power to order presidential electors which candidate to vote for, no matter what the voters of the state say. Can you explain how this would work and where that authority would come from and the nuances of it and so forth? Sure. So uh, my co-author Larry Lessig and I uh, explained the scenario in a New York Times op-ed piece um, in late January. And so the key to this strategy, just as a general uh, structural matter, is that the, the real location of danger in the system isn't in Congress anymore. It's in states, and in particular in state legislatures. So the, the legal framework that we have right now is catastrophically vulnerable to state legislatures interfering with the process. Um, and that's combined with the fact that state legislatures, which are hopelessly partisan gerrymander, are among the most extreme political bodies in the country. And so you have a perfect storm of factors here that give state legislatures the, the interest and the opportunity, the motive and the means to execute a stolen presidential election. And here's one of the ways how. So uh, the country had an education in the Electoral College in uh, late 2020. And so we know that there's the appointment of electors, um, and then the electors cast their ballots in the Electoral College. The entire debate in 2020 was about which set of electors, the Trump electors or the Biden electors, were the ones who were validly appointed by the states. And then it was always assumed that the Trump electors would vote for Trump in the Electoral College and, and the Biden electors were, would vote for Biden. And the reason why that assumption was a good one back in 2020 is that basically every state has a law that requires the electors to vote for whichever candidate they're bound to vote for, they're pledged to vote for. Now, the Supreme Court upheld this power against First Amendment challenge that my co-author, Larry Lessig, argued in the Supreme Court and said, yes, those laws are constitutional. You can require electors to vote for a particular candidate. Now, the problem with that Supreme Court ruling is it didn't say that states can require them 
to vote just for the popular vote winner. It said that state legislatures could require them to vote for whichever candidate the state legislature wants. Now, the laws that it was actually addressing in that case were about the popular vote winner, but there's nothing in the court's decision that limits it to that. So here's the scenario. Imagine, say, the Wisconsin state legislature passes a law that says the Wisconsin electors, whoever they are, um, have to vote for the candidate they're pledged to unless we as a legislature determine that the genuine will of the people of Wisconsin is to vote for some other candidate. And then the electors have to vote for whoever the legislature determines in its unreviewable authority is the real genuine, quote unquote, will of the people. And as we read the Constitution and the law, there's nothing to protect against this right now. What happens with the Supreme Court in a scenario like that? Well, I think we have Bush v. Gore on steroids. You know, Bush v. Gore was about, um, you know, this sort of relatively minor legal issue about counting of uh, you know, ballots that had different chads on them. This is an unprecedented constitutional question. That's And it seems like it would require the Supreme Court to dramatically change course from a decision that was unanimous in 2020 by Justice Kagan. And so, and this would almost certainly be litigated after the election. So we would have in you know, a month or six weeks, this incredible rush to address a novel constitutional question. And it would get extremely chaotic. You know, there are constitutional grounds that could be offered to try to defeat this, that it deprives us of due process of law by changing, you know, who the electors are voting for after the fact. And ultimately, I think those those are good arguments. But at the end of the day, those were also good arguments back in 2020. And so I think we would have a mad dash to the Supreme Court where we would have to decide this incredibly momentous constitutional question in ways that would require it to break sharply with its prior precedent um, because that prior precedent led to places it didn't think it was going to go. Yeah. And, and it seems to me Vance is endorsing something like the steel you're talking about here. Vance is saying straight out that a state legislature can bless a different set of electors if it has a quote unquote reason to believe the election outcome was problematic. The legislature could just invent that reason. Yeah, I think that's right. And that goes again to the core idea of what the MAGA movement is proposing here. Uh, you know, these legal mechanics are really important. And that's what the book is about, because I think it's important that we understand, you know, going into 2020, it was important that people started to understand, okay, what is the Electoral Count Act? How could it be exploited so we can guard against that? But if we zoom back from that, really, you know, what we see here is J.D. Vance, who is as ambitious as any politician in the country, is following the rules of political ambition, which, like rain, finds every little crack and crevice in the pavement. And so he's looking for every little crack and crevice in the legal framework for political exploitation. And so what we're seeing here is he's grabbing one vulnerability, but he's going to find others if, if that one closes. And so we have to be on constant guard for this continual assault on the rule of law. Yeah, and, and this is not theoretical. Your point about the, the MAGA movement being really all about this is critical. In Arizona recently, a GOP lawmaker, a, a diehard Trumpist, introduced a proposal to give the state legislature the sole power to select the presidential electors. On the other hand, this has failed in some places. So candidly, how worried should we be about this actually happening? I mean, I think we should be worried. You know, the the bill that you mentioned that was introduced, which would uh, which would cancel the presidential election uh, in the state of Arizona, would say just the state legislature gets to appoint electors. Now, shockingly, this is constitutional, and we address this in the book. In the early years of the republic, that's exactly how 
uh, states appointed electors. There weren't popular elections. It wasn't until 1860 in uh, South Carolina that there was actually a presidential election. But still, you know, I do have some faith in America and in the American people. And I think that there's just too much opposition to something that's so blatantly and nakedly authoritarian. And so I think the greater risks are the ones that clothe themselves in democratic ideals, but are really authoritarian uh, legal maneuvers. And that's why, for example, instead of canceling the presidential election, I think something like the scenario I outlined before, where the, the state legislature has a kind of veto authority over the election. They say, oh, if the election was marred by fraud or illegal immigrants uh, casting ballots or Italian military sal- satellites or you know ballots from China or whatever it is, they can say, oh, we're trying to determine what the real will of the people is in this hopelessly corrupted popular election. And what we're doing is really the democratic thing. And that's a traditional playbook from authoritarians around the world where they try to clothe themselves in democratic ideals when they're really just seizing power uh, in this authoritarian way. Yeah, I, and, and that brings me to something else. There, there's something pernicious taking place on a level that's deeper than the legal questions we're talking about here. Note that Vance first claimed the media and blue-leaning states had tainted the election as the quote-unquote justification for sending alternate electors. The deeper argument here is that there's something so fundamentally corrupt about our institutions that it's okay for the real American people to just find ways to opt out of the rules. In some sense, our system is not worth committing to in their worldview. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right, that there is this, you know, the MAGA movement and its election denialism uh, mirrors this deeper cultural and social phenomenon about who counts as legitimate Americans. And there's a bit of denialism about that as well. You know, it's the Electoral College means that Donald Trump actually won the 2016 election, but he lost by millions of votes in the popular election. And I think that there's, you know, there's this uh, parallel between denialism about election results and denialism about whether the MAGA movement actually represents the majority of American views. And it never has, and I hope it never will. And so what you can see here is this reluctance to, um, to, in their their view, surrender political power from their movement, which they view as the the legitimate Americans, the real Americans. And so this is manifesting in all sorts of cultural ways about talking about who real Americans are, um, about immigration fights and so on. And it's also popping up in which election results that they think are legitimate, well, well, the ones in which they win. And so you have these you know, paradoxical ideas where, oh, so the, the election was stolen from Donald Trump, but the Republicans who won in congressional races on the very same ballot, they legitimately won. That doesn't even make sense. And so, you know, it's really motivated by, um, by a rejection of the idea that the rest of America is in the majority. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and it, it's interesting that they're the fallback will be in the state legislatures, as in this Arizona rep doing this Arizona lawmaker doing what he did. Because in many ways, there, there, with with it becoming more and more apparent that there's an anti-MAGA majority out there in this country that's durable and keeps rejecting MAGA and Trump. The fallback is in the state legislatures, which are kind of the last holdout of of MAGA, really, right? 
Yeah, that's right. And I think it's not a coincidence that the MAGA movement has, and you know, the conservative movement more broadly, has adopted legal and constitutional views that give primacy to state legislatures. And the reason isn't because of some sort of principled originalism about, well, you know, the state legislatures really were the democratic center of America in, 18, uh, in 1800 or 1787. What it's really about is that State legislatures are hopelessly gerrymandered in ways that rural communities are overrepresented and urban communities are underrepresented, which gives conservatives um, a huge advantage. So, for example, in Wisconsin, uh, the state legislative uh, maps that the uh, that the Wisconsin Supreme Court has just reviewed um, are gerrymandered so Democrats can win a majority of the votes in the state legislature, state legislature statewide, and Republicans can win 60 or 65% of the actual seats. And that entrenches minority power. And the reason why state legislatures are held up as, oh, they're the entities that should really have the power is because of that. Yeah, I should probably add that uh, the the Republican House of Representatives is is also kind of a a holdout for MAGA, and they, man, they've got a lot of senators too, uh, for the very reason you pointed to the the, the uh, anti majoritarian features of the Senate. We we saw the same dynamic with Texas's standoff with the Department of Homeland Security. Really, Texas Governor Greg Abbott argued that the federal government has broken the compact with the states meaning Texas can, here again, just opt out. Even supposedly reasonable Nikki Haley agreed with that idea. Jamel Bowie had a great New York Times column on how this is the new nullification. I think the impulse here is very similar to what we saw with Vance. The basic thing they're all opting out of is the fundamental idea that as part of belonging to our democracy, we have obligations to one another to maintain our democratic system because it's good. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, so it's hard to overstate how radical this view about states and their power over immigration and their power to succeed, secede, their right to secede. I mean, it's we're so uh, acclimated to increasingly radical political and legal views being uh, normalized. And so it's hard to sometimes keep perspective. This is literally the argument that was made in the 1850s that led to the Civil War. There's no exaggeration there. And so, you know, it can sound hyperbolic to bring up analogies to the Civil War, and I'm really reluctant to do so as a result of that. But saying that, well, states have a right to leave or to override federal law because they don't like it anymore. Um, that's not the way that the American constitution works. And we fought a, an extraordinarily deadly and bloody war over that. And that pretty definitively settled the question. And so to see those sorts of views um, percolating up, you know, this isn't a, a right-wing chat forum online. This is you know, almost every Republican governor in the country has signed on to that view at this point, and that's extraordinarily frightening. Yeah, and and just to underscore the point, we had Vance on national television saying these types of things in order to audition for the vice presidential candidate slot in one of the two major parties in the United States. That's absolutely right. You know, and I think one of the dangers that we've seen is, you know, we live in the, you know, LOL, nothing matters era of, you know, political discourse where people can just say the most extreme and more extreme and more extreme things, you know, to try to get attention, to try to get clicks, to try to get uh, donations or a really sweet, um, you know, Fox News commentator gig after they leave office. 
And, you know, we can say, oh, maybe they're not really serious or maybe we shouldn't take them literally. You know, there's that old saw about, you know, take Trump seriously, but not literally. Well, at a certain point, you don't know. Um, and it's just too, too frightening. And one thing I know for certain is that there are a lot of people in the right wing base who are taking them literally, not just seriously. Yeah, that brings me to my final question. I and others have said this before, but the 2020 election was a civic triumph in many ways. Our system held together under enormous strain. But, but ultimately, Vance and many Republicans would, with extraordinary cynicism, reject the idea at a very fundamental level that the system worked because they hated the outcome, and they won't tell their voters that it did work. The venality of this is hard to fathom. And as you point out, it it, it surely is one of the reasons that very large percentages of Trump and MAGA voters still believe that or say they believe that the election was stolen from Trump and so forth. It, it's, it's a pretty depressing state of affairs, isn't it? It is, you know, and I agree that, you know, there, there are different perspectives on how to view the success of 2020. At the end of the day, the system did hold, um, you know, and you can look at that as a success. Ultimately and fundamentally, it was. You know, you can also look at the, you know, 160 something Republican members of Congress who voted to overturn the legitimate results, you know, and say that, well, we dodged a bullet and we sure, sure shouldn't, you know, play Russian roulette again. You know, and so you can take different lessons away from that. And on a fundamental level, I agree with you that, you know, the most important thing that happened on January 6th was the result, uh, you know, and that Biden was sworn in on January 20th, you know, and it is profoundly depressing that uh, a certain segment of the American political uh, elite, along with their base, have decided to take the wrong lesson, which is that we just need to try harder um, to push the coup across the finish line next time. Well, on that cheery note, let's, uh, let's call it a day. Uh, thank you so much, Matthew Seligman. Good to talk to you, Greg. You've been listening to The Daily Blast with me, your host, Greg Sargent. The Daily Blast is a New Republic podcast and is produced by Riley Fessler and the DSR Network. 